Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, we are back. This is Walk Through the Bible, week 33. This week, we are reading in the Daily Bible the dates of August 13 through 19, or what are the pages of 1026 to 1067. Yahoo! We are really making progress. All right, let's review quickly. So last week, we saw where Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles. Well, this week, Jeremiah is going to send another letter. This one to Babylon. I mean, this Jeremiah, he doesn't give up, does he? Very bold and very brave. In um, Jeremiah 50 is where we read about this letter that he sends to Babylon, where he predicts the end of Babylon and that Nebuchadnezzar will be punished. But he ends with that ray of hope, but Israel and Judah will be forgiven. Let's take a look at it, starting in Jeremiah 50, verse 17. Israel is a scattered flock that lions have chased away. The first to devour them was the king of Assyria. The last to crush their bones was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I punished the king of Assyria. But I will bring Israel back to their own pasture, and they will graze on Carmel and Bashan. Their appetite will be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days, at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but none will be found. For I will forgive the remnant I spare. And then I want to uh, go on to verses 33 through 34, because this has a beautiful concept here. The people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah as well. All their captives hold them fast, refusing to let them go. Yet their Redeemer is strong. The Lord Almighty is his name. So don't you worry about the people of Israel and Judah. Their Redeemer is strong, and the Lord Almighty is his name. My friend, no matter what you're facing, don't worry, because your Redeemer is strong, and the Lord Almighty is his name. Uh, The next chapter in Jeremiah 51, uh, verse 5, another beautiful verse. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord Almighty, though their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel. So the prophets are very clear, and here Jeremiah could not be more clear, that whereas God had used this mighty Babylon empire, that he was going to judge them for what they'd done to his people, and that one day his people are going to come home and they're going to be forgiven. 
He has not forsaken them. Even though they went into exile, even though they sinned and they rejected him and he he had to punish them and he had to take them into exile and they've had to suffer this, he has not forsaken his people. Now, at this time, we want to turn to the story of uh, Ezekiel and what Jeremiah is to Judah Ezekiel is to the captives in Babylon. And uh, as I went over last year, our chronology, Jeremiah is the elder of the three prophets. But then in the first wave of exiles was Daniel, who became a prophet in Babylon. And he knew of Jeremiah, and he read in Jeremiah about the 70 years of captivity. Well, uh, Ezekiel was in the second wave of exiles, which was the largest deportation in 597. And he also knew of Jeremiah and he knew of Daniel. And so he mentions them uh, in his book. Um, So here, Ezekiel 1 tells us about God's call of Ezekiel. And it says that it happened in this 30th year. And some scholars debate, was it Ezekiel's 30th year or was it the 30th year since something happened? But I think most of them settle on that it was Ezekiel was 30 years old. It was in his 30th year. Ezekiel was of a family of priests. And so at 30 years of age, Ezekiel should have become begun his priesthood in the temple in Jerusalem. And here he is, sitting by the rivers of Babylon in exile. And so it's at that point that God appears to him and calls him to serve him. But it's not going to be as a priest in the temple. It's going to be as a prophet. And uh, in the beginning of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1 through 24, we um, have his prophecies and his warnings um, about Judah's denouncement of Judah and about what is coming. And um, in chapter 24, then, the book of Ezekiel and the story of Ezekiel takes a change. And um, what happens in chapter 24, we're going to deal with next week. So this week, we're dealing with this first part of Ezekiel's ministry leading up to that moment. And also, remember now, Jerusalem uh, has not yet fallen at this point. Uh, The call of Ezekiel into ministry uh, probably took place around 593. So the temple is still in place for another seven years. Um, But he's not there. He's in exile. So God raises him up as a prophet to speak to his people. Um, Ezekiel has four visions in his book and in his ministry, four major visions, I should say. And the first vision is at the time of his calling, which we're going to read about this week. And the second vision is when the Lord actually, it says he takes him to Jerusalem and he sees the temple and an an amazing vision, which we're going to talk about this week. And then um, the third vision, which we'll cover later, is of the Valley of Dry Bones. And the last one, of course, is of the Renewed Temple. And um, Ezekiel is known as an apocryphal type 
of a book of the visions are full of symbolism. And sometimes it's hard for us to relate to all of this elaborate symbolism. But uh, it is a certain prophetic style, and uh, the symbols all have meaning. And it's just a matter of us studying what they are and what those meanings are. So this week, we're going to be covering in the book of Ezekiel from chapters 1 to 23. Um, now, I want to focus on uh, not his calling and the vision there as much as the second vision. When God takes him by vision to Jerusalem, and um, he sees the idolatry in the temple, and then he sees this amazing lifting of the glory of God. So I want to read this for you here. This is um, starting here with verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Uh, skipping down to verse 22, Then the cherubim, with the wheels beside them, spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision given by the Spirit of God. Now, um, I want us to stop here. Let's, let's talk about what we just read because this is a phenomenal vision and uh, something you don't hear talked about a lot. Ezekiel is seeing the glory of God lift up out of the temple. That's where the presence of God resided. That's where he met with his people. And the glory of God was visibly seen there and experienced there. Here that glory is lifting and it's leaving the temple and it's going east. First it stops over the eastern gate and then it goes over the mountain to the east of the city before it's gone and then the vision is over and Ezekiel's back in Babylon. So what is this eastern gate and what is this mountain to the east of the city? Well, the mountain to the east of the city is the Mount of Olives. You've heard me mention it many times. You have the Temple Mount here, the Kidron Valley, and then it goes up to the Mount of Olives. So the Spirit of God rested. It stopped over the Mount of Olives before it left. And of course, Jesus also stopped and ascended from the Mount of Olives. And the disciples were told by angels, he will come back just as you've seen him go. And I believe that means he's going to come back to the Mount of Olives because the prophet Zechariah saw the Lord come down on to the Mount of Olives. So this is a uh, an amazing, amazing concept here when you think about it that the presence of God left from the Mount of Olives, 
And then it came back to earth in the person of Jesus, and here it left again from the Mount of Olives. But one day it will return, and of course, once again, in the person of Jesus. Now, the eastern gate of the temple, um, there was an eastern gate where you entered the temple mount, and then there was an eastern gate that actually uh, entered the temple itself. But the uh, eastern gate is another very interesting story, the eastern gate of the temple mount. Um, You've seen it in many pictures. It is a closed-up gate. It's been um, all bricked over, and no one uses it. No one comes or goes from the eastern gate today. It's just a part of the wall. And the story is that back in the, I think, 1500s, when the Ottoman Empire um, had ordered for the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt, and so the, the Muslim Ottoman Turks were there building the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, first of all, they made a mistake, and they didn't realize that the ancient city of David should have been included in the walls. So that's why today the wall goes, um, it stays up on top of the hill, and to go to the ancient archaeological dig of the city of David, you actually are outside of today's city walls because these walls were built by the Ottomans. The walls that you see today um, are 600 years old, 500 years old, and built by the Ottomans. So that's point number one. Point number two is uh, the story is, and I don't know that this is really well documented, but the story is that the uh, sultan had been told that this eastern gate of the uh, Temple Mount, that it was rumored that a Jewish Messiah was going to come back and he was going to enter the temple from there, uh, the temple area from there, and um, and he was going to you know be the ruler of the area. Well, this area is under the Ottoman Empire, and they didn't want this to happen, and so the uh, Sultan ordered that the gates be closed. And so after the walls were built, then the gate was sealed shut and that they placed a Muslim graveyard right below that gate. So you can't get to the gate without treading over Muslim graves. And they felt that that also would keep the Jewish Messiah out uh, because he would not defile himself by treading over graves. And so today, when you go with me to Israel, and please sign up uh, down below in the show notes, we have a tour interest list. Please get on the list as soon as we're able to uh, make plans and set dates for a tour. We'll let you know uh, when that will be. But go ahead and just start saving your money now because we will go. Uh, We don't know if it'll be next year or if we'll have to wait longer uh, with all the travel restrictions, but do sign up. And when you go, you'll see the uh, Eastern Gate all barred up and the Muslim grave site right there in front of it. Of course, none of that is going to keep Jesus from returning. Um, The book of Zechariah mentions a great earthquake and a splitting of the mountain. And I believe all that's just going to open up. The Messiah will be able to enter uh, the temple area if, if He's not going to be kept out by this gate or the graves. Of course, today there is not a temple on the Temple Mount. 
and um, I'm going to leave that for a whole nother conversation at another time. But that is uh, this amazing vision that Ezekiel had of the glory of God leaving through the eastern gate and uh, through uh, from the eastern mountain. Now, um, we read another interesting scripture this week in Ezekiel 11, verse 16. And here the Lord is, is saying that amongst the exiles that he said, I have been a sanctuary for them. And uh, this is a really key verse for the Jewish people. They found a lot of significance in this. Why? Because the exiles are away from the temple. At this point, the temple is still in operation. And then, of course, after that, it's, it's completely destroyed. And here these exiles are. They're in a foreign land. And they don't know what are they supposed to do. How are they supposed to worship? And here God says, I have been a sanctuary for them. And this word sanctuary is one that... Um, some rabbis have pointed back to that this was the beginning of a movement of synagogues, that the synagogues never replaced the temple. The synagogues had a slightly different function even, but they were like a little sanctuary. The synagogues were not a place of worship or of sacrifice or all that took place in the temple. And the synagogues were largely a place of learning and a community gathering place and a place where they were taught. and um, But some rabbis point back to this verse as sort of the beginning where they had little sanctuaries there in exile. And by the time of the New Testament, synagogues are just everywhere. Now, there's another concept that I want to uh, touch on, which um, I'm not you know, this would take a, a whole teaching really to really dissect this, but I want to uh, acknowledge a tension that's taking place in our story. And some of you have may even felt it on the inside, and some of you may have questioned this, like, why is it saying this? And doesn't, you know, is that true? It's like it's, there's something here. So I want to just acknowledge it and get it out on the table um, as we walk through this. And this is the whole idea of the judgment for corporate sins versus the judgment for the personal, the individual sins. And how were these people punished for the sins of a previous king? And um, so I want to mention this because in 2 Kings chapter 23 and in 24, and in Jeremiah 15, they all three mention that uh, this judgment is coming because of the sins of Manasseh. And we know Manasseh was an evil king, and he really led the, the nation astray. But then we heard about the good king Josiah. And so it's like, how could God still judge his people from Manasseh if, jo if Joshua, Josiah came along and tried to lead them in the right way? And uh, he got rid of paganism. He got rid of the idolatry. He cleaned out the temple. So uh, wouldn't that have turned away the judgment? And even in our different books, 
there's a little bit of tension about this. So whereas 2 Kings twice kind of put the blame on Manasseh, in Chronicles, which also tells the same story, we go back and forth between Kings and Chronicles because they're telling the same stories, they never put blame on Manasseh. The writer of Chronicles is chronicling the sins of each king and, um, and putting blame on who's ruling then and how their people are behaving then. And then we have the prophet Ezekiel comes out and he really says that the punishment is for the one who sins. So I want to read that. It's in Ezekiel 18. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? And this is the proverb. The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So this means that what the parents do affects the children. And so here, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me, and the one who sins is the one who will die. The one who sins is the one who will die. Uh, jumping down now to verse 20. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Verse 30. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So the prophet Ezekiel here puts it on record. This judgment is because of your sin. So how do we reconcile this? What is Second Kings talking about? And all I can do is attempt in my own feeble wording here is to try to describe a situation where Manasseh brought tremendous evil into the kingdom. And he led the people into evil and into idolatry. And so he began a major descent here into judgment. It is true that Josiah came along and he wiped out the public worship of the idols. He reinstated true worship of the God of Israel in the temple. He went throughout the land, destroying the public worship sites. But what we now know from archaeology is that during the time of Josiah, that people still had idols in their homes. So publicly, they were going along with this, but they were still worshiping the idols 
in private. And this is something that we don't read specifically in our narrative, but it's coming out in archaeology. They're finding a lot of idols from that time period. And so then, even though Josiah is the high point, it wasn't high enough. The people still deserve judgment. And then, of course, after Josiah, the reign of the next four kings uh, took Israel deeper and deeper and deeper into sin, and they deserved the judgment. So I, I want to be clear, they weren't being judged because of something that happened you know, 50 years earlier. They were very much a part of it, and they were judged because of it. And here the prophet Ezekiel sets the record straight. Now, one last verse I'll mention as we bring this week to a close. In Ezekiel 21, 27, the Lord here says that uh, because of this judgment and because uh, Zedekiah is going to lose his crown, it says the crown will not be restored until given to he to whom it rightfully belongs shall come. To him I will give it. And who do you think that that might be? But Messiah, King Jesus, who came in fulfillment of God's promises to David and to, to sit on the throne of David, he is the one that that crown belongs to. And here the Lord tells Ezekiel, the crown will not be restored until it's given to he to whom it rightfully belongs, and he comes to him. I will give it. What a beautiful, beautiful expectation of the coming king that's going to sit on the throne of David and the nations will learn war no more and will sit at his feet and worship in peace and in true, true peace and prosperity for the earth. That's a day we all look for and long for. So enjoy your reading this week. And I'll see you back here next week when it all comes to an end for Judah. Until then, God bless you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.